He had a very messy personal life in terms of marriages, living arrangements, uh, children. We could spend a half hour just talking about that. And I think in some ways it had to have hurt his career in terms of, well, I'll, I'll be polite and call it distractions. It's just like, you know, how can you have a successful ongoing film career? And the more I read about the personal life, what a, what a mess to, to adopt that word you were using for a film. I think it may partly explain again why things taper off and indeed kind of fall off. He keeps working. He does Alice with Woody Allen. He does Until the End of the World, Vim Vendors. He's taking on ambitious roles. But by the end of the 80s, early 90s, he segues and very quickly from lead roles to supporting roles. Hello and welcome to At the Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about the recently passed William Hurt. And, you know, he has an interesting backstory where he grew up in a home where his dad was, you know, working for the State Department. So he lived in all kinds of interesting countries and had, I think, kind of a wonderful childhood in that he experienced things that I think he probably drew on as an actor later. And then when his mom remarried to a very wealthy person, you know, a completely different world that he entered into and, you know, was sort of viewing as an outsider on the inside. I think these early things that shaped him really dovetailed into the kinds of acting jobs that he took on. But Mike, where, where do you want to start with William Hurt? Well, on a personal note, when, when he passed away from cancer at the age of 71, I was really saddened by that because this is an actor that I'd followed throughout his career and had some uh, close encounters with, never quite met him or talked with him. But um, I remember once when he was filming The Accidental Tourist in Baltimore, because it's based on an Ann Tyler novel. She's a longtime Baltimore resident. He was here shooting it, and I was in Mount Vernon Place watching them shoot a scene. And it involved basically just William Hurt. And in the scene, it's such a basic setup he was walking up the, the white marble steps, you know, of a brownstone uh, of a townhouse. And, you know, Lawrence Kasdan's a director and, and like take after take. And whenever people will say to me, isn't it glamorous to, to make movies? I'll say, well, you know, when you're on a film set, it's not always quite so glamorous. There's a mechanical process that can, can be kind of you know, tedious, frankly. And I watched him for quite a while and they just did take after take. And not that there was anything wrong, but you're always thinking, you know, particularly when you're shooting on location like that. You need to make sure, well, you know, what's the blocking? Where's the actor? Light levels, sound, if you're recording live sound, you know, if a fire engine goes by or something, okay, another take. And just all the calibrations of working on location like that. And I remember just watching him thinking, this is like, you know, this is in the 80s, which is his golden decade, as we'll talk about presently. And I thought, you know, this is really a, a very fine actor. And I just enjoyed watching him for a bit. But after about four or five takes of going up the steps, I thought, OK, I've watched him go up the steps. The other uh, near encounter was I actually did at the Telluride Film Festival once meet his, uh, his first wife, the actor, Mary Beth Hurt. And so I had, you know, sort of like that, what I call circling uh, an actor that I, I, I know and, and respect. So on a personal level, I had those kind of like near encounters, but uh, in terms of being a moviegoer with constant encounters, I really thought, particularly in that decade of the 80s, he did such good work. And we can talk more about what happened to the career, but I like to focus on the positive here. That was a great decade for him. Leading up to that decade and doubling back on what Marie said by way of biographical background, Yes, his, his family traveled so much because of his dad's job. I mean, he's born in Washington, D.C., but he spent so much time in other countries. 
that all that informs just his awareness of things, right? How could it not to have that kind of background? And the fact that his stepfather was Henry Luce III, you know, the, the fact that, you know, that's the, the same Luce, uh, his father had been uh, editor-in-chief of Time Magazine and so on. So, so really somebody moving in the top echelon, whether you want to talk about diplomatic circles or journalistic circles, whatever. So he's moving in great company that way. The thing that, that, that we'll, we'll talk about, and in a sense, ironically, not talk about is, is the fact that in terms of William Hurt's upbringing, kind of privileged in that way, right? And there always was that quality to him, I think, that, that you know this was somebody who was somebody or from, from some, a family of somebodies that, that way. Uh, in terms of his education, he began at Tufts by way of college. It was actually, though, at Juilliard in the drama division that he really got his real training as an actor, of course. And what we're not going to talk about, just because the nature of our show is, he has a really solid background as a theater actor, uh, you know, before he was in the movies for quite a few years. And then even as he was a, a movie star, he would still do stage work and sometimes get a lot of recognition. The prominent American playwright David Rabe, his play Hurley Burley, when William Hurt was in that, he had a Tony Award nomination, you know, so he's gotten that kind of recognition as well. But let me hand it back to Maria at this point, because what we want to do, I think, is when he does enter the movies, we're going to start in 1980. And my goodness, I mean, I'm trying to think of ways to say this where I'm not just gushing, but but my goodness, I'll let it go at that. My goodness, from like 1980 for the next decade or so, it's one hit after another. I mean, critically and oftentimes commercially, he's doing great films, really fascinating work. Time. So that's why when I was a moviegoer in that decade, I always looked forward to seeing William Hurt because, you know, again, my goodness, you, you know, how many quality films he was in then. Marie, pick up on this because my enthusiasm is bubbling over. Well, you're right. He's been in a lot of great films and you mentioned The Accidental Tourist, but, you know, the person who stands out to me in that movie as the memorable star is Gina Davis. Having read the book and being waiting with anticipation for the movie to come out, who's going to play this person? Who's going to play that person? That was the you know, inspired casting choice. But I do want to start off there because this is one of the movies with Lawrence Kasdan, which I think was one of those lucky breaks you get where you start doing some movies with somebody and you click with them and they click with you and then you make a bunch of movies together. So, I mean, they made Body Heat, which I know you want to talk about, Mike. The Big Chill, I Love You to Death. So, and aside from that, I do agree with you. He does have that sort of genteel quality kind of quietly strong and i want to get your take on him as a leading man in terms of how his career was shaped by lawrence kasdan thank you for saying that because that partnership means a lot lawrence kasdan's name deserves to be better known he's a really smart writer and, and director and for our purposes here his working relationship with William Hurt benefited both of them. Whatever the chemistry was, it was good chemistry. And they really, really made, and Marie's mentioned some of the films they did together. But it's actually another director that we, we have to go back to in terms of what started that, that run. Actors sometimes have great runs. This is one of the great runs, I think, in contemporary American film. And that would be uh, Ken Russell, of all people. It's sort of an improbable choice for our present discussion. But Altered States in 1980, that was the Ken Russell film in which William Hurt and, and Patty Chayefsky wrote the script, so, you know, it's a one-two punch there. But he plays a psychotherapist in that film who's studying schizophrenia. And so uh, William Hurt is very good in that role. And it's uh, actually, you know what, people would have known him, some people, for the stage work prior to that. But, you know, frankly, most American viewers would know him for a box office hit like that. 
and everything that came after it. So in that same year, you know, in 1980, altered, altered states is what sort of puts him on the map. Let's just put it that way. And then the next year, 1981, he does Eyewitness. So again, an another, you know, prominent role for him. And now, and I can't wait to get to this, so we've gotten to it, Body Heat in 1981, another Lawrence Kasdan collaboration. For many years, we used Body Heat in our Intro to American Cinema course, because we'd talk about film noir, you know, going back to the 1940s and so on. But I would show them Body Heat from 1981 as in, you know, film noir is so influential as a genre, in terms of as a style of, of filmmaking, uh, in terms of story content, et cetera, that for decades after that, you see the film more influence. And Body Heat, I think, is a really great, really classic film. And the reason I mentioned the academic context is when I would sit down and watch the film again with, with my class, I could always watch it again and be totally pulled into it. I mean, that's generally the case for me, but that was a case where every, even though I knew exactly what was going to happen, I'm still pulled into that. And that pairing of William Hurt and Kathleen Turner is absolutely terrific. I've actually met her a few times over the years, but those are stories for another occasion. The stories here are all about William Hurt, but it's a perfect pairing of William Hurt as the anti-hero and Kathleen Turner is like the ultimate femme fatale. I, only Barbara Stanwyck could, could top that in, in some ways. Uh, after all, it would be Kathleen Turner who would be the voice for Jessica Rabbit, right? You know, I mean, you know, she, she had those qualities in, in, in all of her work on stage and screen and so on. But Kasdan has such a strong awareness of film genre and film history. How could we as academics not respond to that? And just as viewers, he loves those genres. I mean, you know, whether he's making a science fiction movie or, or a film noir or whatever, he really knows the material. So in Body Heat, it's true to all of the tropes, all of the attributes of traditional film noir, but it's very much updated to the 80s. So in terms of the sexuality, in terms of the language, in terms of the violence, you can do and say more than you could in the 40s, bluntly, when you had the production code to worry about. But he handles that very astutely. He doesn't go overboard with like, oh, man, now I can do whatever I want. No, he's, he's very careful about how that's doled out. And it's letter perfect. I mean, I keep using the word perfect because every time I watch Body Heat, I think, there isn't a thing in it I, I would change. There's only like one or two shots even where I might say, eh, no. yeah, no, but otherwise, like 99.9% .9 of the time, I think this is great. This is fabulous. And for me, now this is, we're going back to when I saw these things first run. For me, yeah, I was aware of William Hurt from Altered States and, you know, reading about him on stage and all, but it was Body Heat that delivered for me. And at that point, when I said, oh my goodness, you know, in, in that period, like every time there was a new movie, if it's William Hurt, I couldn't wait to see it. So Marie, let's talk it forward from there. So I want to get your take on Body Heat, first of all. And, and then, you know, as we roll out the films from the next few years, which would then lead up to films like Accidental Tourist. Well, if anybody hasn't seen Body Heat, it is a smoking hot film noir. And the two leads, as you said, are perfectly cast. I want to mention that one of the reasons I think this works with these two in the leads is this anecdote about William Hurt and Kathleen Turner wanting the crew to feel comfortable filming their love scene. So they lined all the crew up and introduced themselves to each of them while they were both buck naked. Now, as an actor, you know, you can avoid that kind of embarrassing encounter. But to just actually go there and, you know, I'm here I am and this is where I'm going to I'm going to look like, you know, it's all just, you know, right there. That's actually very daring. And I think that might be responsible for why those scenes work so well. If I could interject there, because I've used the film so often in, in the classroom over the years, you know, sometimes when actors do a love scene like that, you wonder, well, you know, where are their body doubles or where are they masking or body stocking, whatever. But in Body Heat, because of, of the more liberal climate and filmmaking, 
There's no doubt that these are two, they're not just nude, they're naked, if I can make that distinction. <laughs> two naked actors, and boy, you know, this looks pretty real to me. And the reason I wanted to interject that was, I know from classroom experience, I'm always listening and, and sort of paying attention to my audience response, my students, right, how they're responding. When those scenes come on in the film, the room goes very quiet. <laughs> People are very attentive there. And, and I'm, I'm jesting about it, but, but for me, it's one of the strengths of the film is that there's so much conviction in that film in terms of, you know, this tempestuous love relationship and then the murder scheme that comes out of it and so on. It's really compelling at that kind of visceral level. It's really, I mean, it definitely earned the, the R rating, but it's not just like shocking for the sake of shock. It's all in the service of film noir, of that story and so on. So Marie, with Body Heat, why don't we move on to some of the other films he did in the early mid 80s? Because he will get an Academy Award. I mean, this is a great run, as I keep saying, but let's tick off some of those titles there because my goodness, there's so much we could say about all these films. Well, I feel like we absolutely have to mention The Big Chill because this is a movie that I don't think holds up over time. But in its day, it was so amazingly hyped and discussed and it had so many big stars in it. and Everybody saw it at the time. I mean, Kevin Costner, you know, I think this was actually his first role. He plays the dead body. You don't even see his face. But, you know, later when he became a star, it was like, oh, and he was also in The Big Chill. You just didn't realize it. It was a big, big deal when it came out. Great ensemble piece, wonderful actors in it, including, of course, William Hurt. But I don't think it holds up. Over, it does not pass the test of time. Like, what happened? Well, this is a curious point, and, and I love to talk about things like this. When The Big Chill came out, you're absolutely right. You know, I, th that overused word, because I overuse it so much as zeitgeist, it really hit the moment, uh, you know, in, in terms of culture and, and, and the characters. Like, for instance, William Hurt playing a Vietnam veteran and all, it comes out at just the right point there. And it's like, not just like in the film reviews, but what I call the op-ed page, right? It's like people writing about a commentary on, on contemporary America, blah, blah, blah. And it worked really well when it came out. I don't think it holds up. And the reason why I find it a really curious film to talk about is sometimes there are films that like hit the moment that way. And there's somehow also like eternal. Uh, who can explain, you know, that magic, right? Where it's like perfect for the moment it comes out and somehow it, it holds up really well. And, and we'd have to look at specific films to, to make that less than a vague characterization. But this is a case here, speaking of specific films, where it, it really spoke to that moment. But, you know, that's where it's a curious and kind of unstable situation and that it can speak to the moment. And then, you know, years and decades later seem dated, seem like it's a period piece somehow. Marie, let me let me probe your further thoughts on this, because I always find that something curious to, to talk about is and why did was it like so much on our agenda then that, it, that it's something we all wanted to talk about? And now we have to like somehow make allowances to say, oh, well, that was the 80s or, the, you know, the ways which, well, that's how they wore their clothes and their hair and all the ways in which we kind of just not quite dismiss it, but put it in a little box, a convenient box. Well, that was very much a movie from 1983, from the early 80s. And so what do, what do you think about this? Because I think I agree with you completely. The big chill doesn't particularly hold up. But I think it led to other things because it was so successful that it led to things like St. Elmo's Fire, where you also have an ensemble, but it's slightly younger rat pack kind of or brat pack i think they started calling them kinds of stories which kind of came off of the whole john hughes era of movies where he kept using the same characters and then they sort of made it larger to include more characters around the main characters and i think that also came out of you know watching something like 30 something on tv and then friends that would come after that where it's you know it's about following a group of people in their adventures. 
But somehow when you like follow it back to the original, it's funny that the original does not hold up as the gold standard, but as a jumping off point. You make a great observation with that, that, that ironically that original somehow just doesn't quite hold up, but to its credit that it spawned so many, not just movies, but TV shows. And maybe you've identified the key thing here, namely the kind of ensemble that is really ideal for its audience in that given moment. And think like with, with TV shows where, you know, you have that ensemble cast and, you know, oh, that's like my sister. Oh, I, I knew a guy like that in the office, whatever, you know, that, that kind of a response. Or I wore shoes like that, or my apartment had that sort of sofa in it. And I don't want to make it seem superficial or trivial, but a lot of the success of something like that is that kind of immediate recognition of characters, of setting, of whatever the obsessions were of that particular age. And in retrospect, sometimes I find it becomes what I call footnoted cinema or TV shows that over time you find yourself having to explain something. Oh, well, you know, he was the president of the United States in that year. Or, you know, and we, Marie and I both know this from classroom experience, things that we would take for granted because we saw these movies first run and we know the references for younger audiences or, or newer audiences. It's almost like you need to have that explanatory text as to what some of that signified. Now, let me get your thoughts on this because it's kind of a curious thing where being dated isn't necessarily an entirely negative thing. It becomes part of our history at that point, but it might not hold up quite as well creatively. It's more a matter of how it spoke to the moment. That and the way they divvy things up so you get interesting characters. You know, like there's the friend who's super successful, but it's not really happy with where they are in life. And, you know, there's the the mom who is, you know, questioning whether she gave up too much by having children. And then, of course, her friend who can't get pregnant. I mean, you, you see these sorts of lanes open up in, in lots of other situations because they're common things people go through. Well, maybe not being a movie star, you know, what do I do with all this money? And I don't know what to do with my career. That That is not most people. But it's something people are interested in seeing. And would like, I think there's a little bit of schadenfreude there where you get to see that somebody who might have what you would think would be a desirable life, is it's not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, I think you're right that, you know, when we relate to characters, it's sometimes in what I call a sort of enjoyably negative way. If you don't like the character for whatever reason, then the character comes to a bad end, the pleasure one might take in that. It may not speak well to our character, speaking of characters, but there's something to that. And I think, Marie, absolutely, you nailed it on the head there. With a large ensemble like that, you as an audience essentially are sort of playing favorites, right? I mean, we all do this. Like, oh, I love I love her character, but her boyfriend, eh, you, you know, I'm, I'm, gl I'm glad he, he got fired or something. But, but that's the point at which when it works, whether the, in the original iteration or in retrospect as we watch it again, you are in, in some ways immersing yourself in the soap opera. You're pulling yourself into the world of those characters. And so even though the big chill may not hold up in terms of the topicality of it as a template, as, as really a launching pad, for so many movies and TV shows since then, it's still a really influential film that way. And if you talk about the most important film, like when I taught a course on Hollywood in the 1980s, you know, I didn't use the big chill, but I was, it was in my mind. I thought you could use it there because sometimes I'll use a film that may not be a great film, but that speaks to a moment. And that's a film that truly spoke to a moment. Now, something I want to get your thoughts on, Mike, is I was reading up about William Hurt, as soon as I knew that he passed, I knew you and I were going to do a show about it. And I went back and watched some of his movies that I hadn't seen. And one thing I read was they described him as a thinking woman's pinup. And I thought, really? I just really never thought of William Hurt as a leading man in that way. And when I went back to watch some of his older movies, particularly broadcast news, I could see, oh, right, I, I see it now. I mean, 
the way, you know, the highlights in his hair and the way that he shot, you know, to look like, you know, the really handsome blonde love interest. So broadcast news kind of brought that back to me. And then, of course, Gorky Park, when I watched it, I thought, oh, it's so bizarre, by the way, to have this, you know, American guy playing this Russian. But that's how they did things when when they were making those kinds of movies. Gorky Park, I thought was really uneven. But I think it was a way to try to sell him as a sort of James Bond-esque character without having him be as dashing as some of the James Bonds have been. So where does William Hurt fall for you, Mike, in terms of a leading man? Great observation, because in the 1980s, he was movie star handsome. And there also was that thinking man quality to him. And then, moreover, he played a variety of roles, actually. He was quite versatile as an actor. So he's making good choices. The Lawrence Kasdan collaborations have a lot to do with that. And so, you know, there is, you know, for women, they could, they could say this is a romantic lead. You know, they could sort of, you know, as, as moviegoers find that of interest, you know, he's going to anchor the film that way. But just generally for viewers feeling that, you know, there's a confidence level. I like to put it that way, a confidence level, that whether he's playing a Russian or something else, he's, he's really, really uh, capable there. But let me actually cut to the quick on that, because by way of recognition for that capability, his great run, we mentioned The Big Chill from 1983, Gorky Park, which I agree with you, was on Eden that same year. But now he really, really hits gold. When he does Kiss of the Spider Woman in 1985, he will win the Academy Award for Best Actor there. And there he's playing a, it's a Hector Babenko film. He's playing a gay prisoner. So he's, you know, he's, he's playing against, in some ways, the very things I've just been saying, as in, yeah, you know, he's a, a romantic lead, but the romance takes a kind of pivot here, if you will. But as an actor, William Hurt was not afraid to take on roles like that that might be risky for other actors. I'm thinking in a very conventional kind of stereotypical way. If you're a romantic lead, and you've just been romancing Kathleen Turner, et cetera, you know, now to flip things like that. He does that very convincingly in Kiss of the Spider Woman. He wins the Academy Award. Moreover, he is nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor for his next two roles after that. So he wins it for Kiss of the Spider Woman in 85. The very next year, 1986, in Children of Lesser God, a film we'll want to talk about, he's nominated again as Best Actor. The year after that, in Broadcast News, once again, nominated for the Best Actor Oscar. Not that that's unprecedented, but it's nearly so. When you think about it, not only just to win an Academy Award, but for each of the two years after that to be nominated again in that same top category, very few actors have had a run like that. And that's why I have such fond memories of that golden age for him in the 1980s as a leading man. But again, quickly adding to that, a leading man in some very different roles. He doesn't just play William Hurt, if you will. It's William Hurt as a thinking man, as an actor, taking on really disparate roles. Yeah, I think you've really hit on what made him a good actor in that run. What he was recognized for were very, very different roles, actor roles, not just burnishing the image of William Hurt so that he could continue to be the leading man in everything they wanted to cast him in. And I also want to mention that I do think it was genius for him to associate himself with the whole Avengers series because he had a role in there as, as Secretary of State Thaddeus Ross. Now, that may not mean anything to younger folks who he's just a small character, but for people like you and I who have seen him in a lot of different movies, you go to see Avengers and you see him show up in that, and he gives it a gravitas because he's a established actor with a lot of talent. So it's not a joke or campy. It works as a small role that you want to do later in your career. Unlike, I just want to make sure I mention, The King's Daughter, which was his last film, 
which I watched yesterday on Amazon. And oh my God, what a terrible movie. And, and it shouldn't be a terrible movie because it also has Pierce Brosnan in it, who I love. But it's a mess of a movie that's supposed to be about Louis XIV, his unbeknownst to us until now, illegitimate daughter, and a mermaid that has been stolen from the deep to give him eternal life. It's just such an absolute mess of a movie. William Hurt plays, you know, the priest in this. Please don't watch this. Please do not think of this man's career in terms of this last role, because wow, what a mess that was. We are actually now in our last five minutes. So unless you want to bring up another one of his movies, Mike, should we address the scandal? Well, I do want to address that in a twofold way. One is he had a very messy personal life in terms of marriages, live-in arrangements, uh, children. We could spend a half hour just talking about that. And I think in some ways it had to have hurt his career in terms of, well, I'll, I'll be polite and call it distractions. <laughs> it's just like, you know, how can you have a successful ongoing film career? And the more I read about the personal life, what a, what a mess to, to adopt that word you were using for a film. I think it may partly explain again why things taper off and indeed kind of fall off. He keeps working. He does Alice with Woody Allen. He does Until the End of the World, Vin Vendors. He's taking on ambitious roles. But by the end of the 80s, early 90s, he segues and very quickly from lead roles to supporting roles. This is a matter of armchair psychoanalysis, what happens here. He's not that old biographically, right? But he's not playing the, he's not getting the lead roles. He's doing supporting roles in all kinds of movies. It's an extensive list. He does keep working both in film and television, but not all that much that's notable. And as Marie mentioned, towards the end of the career, some things that are not notable at all. Marie, what do you think happened here? Because for me, it's actually rather sad to think about this, that this major film star of the 80s, this, this leading actor, by 1990, into the 90s, and then really the last 20 or so years of his career, yeah, he keeps working, but he's like in an Avengers movie. For me, it's kind of melancholic that, that in the midst of all that frenzied activity, all those special effects and all those actors, oh, there's William Hurt 10 minutes. You know, it's just like, well, he's working, but gosh, this guy's done such good work in the past, and now he's just popping up as a supporting player. What do you think? I think it's a cautionary tale that gives us a way to talk about how things go down in Hollywood in our classroom. The thing I like to liken this to is the Weinstein brothers and Harvey Weinstein. It used to be when I would show a movie and that logo would come up, you know, the Weinstein Corporation, I would say to my students, you know, you hoped that the Weinstein brothers would pick up your movie and Miramax would support it because you would have this juggernaut of advertising and your movie would probably be successful. But now when I show a movie with that and it comes up, you know, then I have to say, well, you know, back in the day, it would have been great for this to happen to you because it would have meant all these things for your success of your movie. But of course, now, you know, we have to acknowledge that it has this kind of dark cloud over it. I'm fascinated, always fascinated by when people's names, you know, fit what they end up doing. And the fact that his name, William Hurt, actually is a full sentence that is actually bolstered by these claims people have come out, you know, saying that he was, you know, violent or abusive. It's a sad footnote to an actor's career, but it doesn't negate all the things that he did. That's perfectly expressed because when I go back and watch his best films in the 1980s, they are still his best films. That still works. And it just makes for a more complicated discussion. 
because, you know, there's that personal life, which was really shocking in some ways. I mean, at least the things he's accused of having done and so on. You have to always have that in your mind. And yet also always have in your mind that this was a really good actor, at least back in the day. And I suppose it is a sort of cautionary tale there. Was this destiny in the name itself? I mean, it's terribly glib for me to say that, but but I, I thought the same thing that you mentioned, right? That there's something there that, that he almost, Marie, do you think to some extent he almost like, like what I call like self-sabotage that within him somehow, you know, you can't just blame a producer for this or that, but within himself, what do you think, Marie? It's a, it's a very difficult subject to talk about. There's something within him that seemed kind of self-destructive. There's also that element of wondering why this comes out after he is gone and cannot say anything about it. So, yeah, we will never know. You know, that's that's one of those things. I mean, I want to um, respect anybody who comes forward with stories like that. But at the same time, I don't know, the work somehow is what it is. And the, the person who did it is is something else because, you know, aren't we all imperfect? Maybe not that bad, though. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's part of the difficulty of the discussion is to what extent can we differentiate and separate this, the personal life and the professional accomplishments. Gosh, we could spend, you know, hours talking about that. So at the moment, we just have to say it's just something that we always think about as we talk about a film career. One of these days when he passes, we will have to do like a two hour episode of Woody Allen. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.